this week on Hope for the Broken. Sex is God's design. But if it is God's design and God speaks much about it, then don't you think the church ought to be a voice in the midst of a culture that seeks to redefine God's definition of it? And before we dive into our teaching, I want to lay some groundwork. While I believe that the Bible is very clear regarding sexual sin, everyone is loved by God. If you have breath, I am here to tell you today that God loves you. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Real Questions, Biblical Answers. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part six titled, What Does the Bible Say About Sexual Sin? I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number eight. We are in the middle of a teaching series we have called Real Questions, Biblical Answers. And as I mentioned to start the services, we've fielded questions from you, our church family, our congregation, and have laid them out in order to answer them to the best of our ability. And uh, this has been a lot of a fun series for me to hear where your thoughts are to where your heart is and to drive us all to the scriptures because it is the scriptures that is to be our guide, the scriptures that is to be our informant on all matters. And so today we're tackling the question, what does the Bible say about sexual sin? You know, we live in a culture and we live in a day and time that is sought to redefine ethics regarding human sexuality. My observation is that our culture is overly sexualized. It seems to be constantly set before us in television shows, marketing strategies, and in the internet, you're just one click away. It has even become a regular discourse in politics. One's preferences are now the basis of their identity or their struggle with identity. Consider the devastating impact that the sexual revolution has had on society. Millions of unwanted pregnancies, shattered dreams, divorce, abortions, rampant sexual diseases, some of which are incurable. Other people have battled deep depression and have even taken their own life. Families have been ripped apart on the basis of sexual orientation. But as it's true to Scripture regarding all topics of modernity, the Bible brings much to bear on this subject of human sexual ethics and the role it plays in human flourishing. So this morning, I want to approach our topic in three different ways. I want to spend a third of the sermon answering the question, what does the Bible say about sexual sin? I want to spend a third talking about what I believe Jesus would do in our day and time. And then the final third, I want to talk specifically about practical approaches to dealing with relationships as is truly what the questions that were submitted surrounds. But I want to begin by saying that I think it's important for us to discuss this topic because sex is God's design. It is God's gift to us. 
And secondly, I believe that the enemy would shame us, being the church, into being silent on this issue. But if it is God's design and God speaks much about it, then don't you think the church ought to be a voice in the midst of a culture that seeks to redefine God's definition of it? And so I think that it's vitally important that we communicate that today. And before we dive into our teaching, I want to lay some groundwork, some basis, a foundation by which I'm operating here this morning as we discuss this topic. First, while I believe that the Bible is very clear regarding sexual sin, all people are loved immensely by God. Everyone is loved by God. If you have breath, I'm here to tell you today that God loves you. Secondly, I believe the Bible confronts us all on this very subject matter. And you're going to see that in just a moment. I believe that when it comes to the issue of what does the Bible say about sexual sin, it is an equal opportunity offender. And I want to give you a warning up front that today will most likely step on your toes, regardless of where you land on this issue, as the preparation time has for me. I want to start also by sharing with you my desired outcome for today. What I would love for you to walk away from with today. Number one, I believe the Bible is absolutely clear. I believe the Bible is clear. And I will always stand on God's word unapologetically. I don't have to defend God's word. God's word has proven itself true and timeless regardless of the topic at hand. And scripture is my authority. Scripture is my guide on all matters. Secondly, what I want you to walk away with today is this, is I love you more than you will ever know. My love for you, regardless of your struggles and what you walked into this place here is unchanged. It is my heart's desire that you experience God's best for your life and that we preach and teach God's word wholly. So with that groundwork, let's examine, number one, what does the Bible say about sexual sin? Two specific things that I want to point out about what the Bible says on this issue. First, the Bible says to flee sexual sin, to run from it, to go in the opposite direction, and to do so with all of your might. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Well, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The Bible says that we are to flee sexual immorality. And Paul here seems to suggest that sexual sin differs from all other sins. I think the point that Paul is making is that while it doesn't have a different ranking in terms of offending God because sin is sin, it does have different consequences. Sexual sin impacts more than just our physical bodies. It has spiritual implications. And it's also something that almost always affects more than just the person participating in the immorality. This type of sin destroys marriages. This type of sin destroys families. It seeks to divide relationships. 
Did you know that almost every book in the Bible speaks against sexual immorality? It's true. You can find it in almost every book in the scriptures. That's because God wants us to know to avoid it. At all cost, we are to flee sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God. This is God's desire, your sanctification. And the first thing that's listed in our sanctification is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So the first thing that I want us to know about what the Bible says about sexual sin is it says to avoid it at all cost. The second thing that the Bible says regarding sexual sin is that we are to honor God's design. We are to honor God's design. I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It's on the screen. You can flip there if you want. We're going to come to John chapter 8 in just a moment. But this is Hebrews 13, 4. It says, let the marriage bed be held in honor, or let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The first thing that God says here is that marriage is to be held in honor among all people. Honor in the original language means to value. It means to place a great price on. And to give you the impact, the level of honoring that this is talking about, First Peter uses the very same word when talking about the value of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Perhaps we have gotten off track as a society because we've failed to value marriage in our culture. We've diverted from God's design. Now, God is the inventor of marriage. He performed the very first wedding ceremony when he brought Eve to Adam. And Adam said, this at last is what my soul had been longing for. And because God is the inventor of marriage, he is alone the definer of marriage. If we are going to hold marriage in honor, it must be according to God's definition. And God clearly defines marriage. And Jesus even repeats God's definition that is issued in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is what God says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why is this such a big battleground? Well, I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches that marriage is a foundational component to society. Where marriage is not held in honor, society is in chaos. Only a marriage between a man and a woman could be unitive, procreative, and spiritual. And we have enough evidence, I would say, over the past decades to say that God's way is actually the best way to raise future generations. And I feel like I've got to interject something here because I I think the church has gotten a reputation here that that we need to to avoid. I, I think the church, and whenever I say the church, I'm talking about the universal church, not specifically Trinity. I'm, I'm talking about the, the church as a whole. Uh, I think the church has fallen short on this topic because we tend to only refer to specific sexual sin that we all want to be against. But if we're going to be true to Scripture, we have to realize that sexual immorality involves much more than homosexuality. We cannot be pharisaical here. 
We have to examine, examine the scriptures and allow it to speak to our own hearts. And again, look at Hebrews 13.4, the second part. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, sexually immoral and adulterous. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. That means free from contamination, to be pure. Here is the bottom line of Scripture. It is God's design for a sexual relationship to be between a man and a woman in the confines of a covenant marriage. Period. That's where Scripture aligns. And anything, anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Biblical clarity. Fornication. Pornography. Homosexuality, prostitution, gender confusion, adultery, lust. Anything that is against God's original design, beloved, is sin. And I think those are real struggles, no doubt. I think they're very real struggles. But here's what I want you to know. If your opinion about anything contradicts God's word, guess which one is wrong? Let me give you a clue. It's not God's word. And so I think it's important to point out here that God's prohibitions against sexual immorality of any kind is for our good. It is not God's desire to be oppressive here. You understand? It's for our good, and it is for human flourishing. And when we live in alignment to God's word, there is true freedom. And that's the point. Fleeing sexual immorality is a command of God because it is for our good. Holding marriage in honor is a command of God because it is for our good. And now I understand that the conversation here involves much more surrounding this issue. And I'd love to meet up with you over a cup of coffee and talk more in depth if you'd like. But I don't think the focus of this sermon needs to be on just the biblical prohibitions. I think this, this to, to be comprehensive here in the short amount of time, I, I think that, that we need to shift the focus into to talking about what is our response. I, I wanted to be clear on what the Bible says, and I feel like I've accomplished that fact, right? That Scripture is, is clear. But today I want to talk about a response. Do we live in a culture that is headed in the wrong direction? Yes. But hasn't God uniquely positioned us, his church, to be a light to this culture that is headed in the wrong direction? Yes. It's why we're here. It's why God has preserved the church, that the church would be a beacon of hope, a beacon of light, to be able to be a mirror, to see where we have gone wrong and then shift and move in a direction that honors him. And I can't think of a better way to be a light than to do what Jesus would do. Amen? So we've talked about what the Bible says. Now let's ask that question. What would Jesus do today? How would Jesus operate in the midst of our culture? In the midst of an overly sexualized culture. And and by the way, might I add, it is always best practice to do what Jesus would do. 
Did you know that Jesus often dealt with people caught in sexual sin? I think the culture would say, well, Jesus never addressed the issue. Oh, yes, he did. Think about the people that he interacted with, Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, which is what we're going to look at in John chapter 8. And in addition to just those examples of Jesus personally confronting this sin, the bulk of the New Testament was written to believers living in morally depraved cities that were filled with sexual immorality. And so to say that the Bible doesn't speak to this is a false statement. Scripture is clear. Jesus dealt with it. And if we're going to be a people of hope in our depraved society, then we must be like Jesus in this arena. So let's take our cues from him. John chapter 8, Jesus' interaction with a woman caught in adultery, which is sexual sin. Let's read the entire passage, verses 3 through 11, as we discover three approaches to people living in sexual sin. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was ultimately left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. Three thoughts that I have on how Jesus would interact with those in our culture living in sexual sin. First, remember our own sinfulness. Before you and I ever take the speck out of someone's eye, let's first remove the log from our own. Before we ever point a finger, let's first examine our own lives. It's important when dealing with people to remember your own sinfulness. Last week, we talked about the fact that we all battle sin. And we we all identified with that struggle And the reason to begin with remembering our own sinfulness is that it accomplishes two things. When we first reflect on and remember our own sin, you know what it keeps us from being? Keeps us from being Pharisees. And number two, it best postures us to love others. We identify with them. In Luke chapter 7, the story of a woman that washed Jesus' feet with the expensive ointment, Jesus said that the woman had such an expression of love because she had what? Been forgiven much. He goes on to say that the person who is forgiven little loves little. But the person who remembers how much they have been forgiven, oh, they love much. We can't help but be overcome with love for others when we remember the condition we were in when Jesus rescued us. 
In John 8, Jesus helps the Pharisees to remember their sin. He bent down and wrote in the sand. Now, while we don't know exactly what it is that Jesus wrote in the sand, I think from the context we can get a really good idea. I think what Jesus was writing in the sand were the sins of those Pharisees that stood so pious, bringing this woman who I think they trapped. And I want to know, where's the man? But these Pharisees are being extremely Pharisaical, and I believe Jesus is writing their sin. And they're referencing a a, a command I'll get to in just a moment. But then Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And what did they do? They began leaving. Says the oldest to the youngest. Because Jesus caused them to remember their own sin. He forced the Pharisees to remember their sin. Listen, by nature, you and I are sinners. We have, in error, somehow ranked our sin to somehow mean that our sin is not as offensive to God than other people's sin. Oh, beloved, your sin is just as stenchy to God. Remember the forgiveness you found. Aren't you grateful that sins are forgivable? With the exception of one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to deny the saving grace of God. But he forgives sin. Even the most heinous of sexual sin. I believe that there are those that truly struggle with same-sex attraction. I believe there are those that are hurting and working their way through gender identity issues. I believe there are people that struggle with other proclivities, but don't we believe in a God that can rescue from any and every sin? Then let's be a people that can be used of God to help provide that rescue. Remember our own sins. Secondly, don't weaponize Scripture. In the story in John chapter 8, the Pharisees that brought the woman before Jesus referenced Scripture. They called to Jesus' recollection an Old Testament command. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now there is not an Old Testament law that specifically states that those committing adultery are to be stoned. It just says that they are to be put to death. And by the way, it's not just the woman that's to be put to death. It's both offenders that are to be put to death according to the Old Testament law by stoning or some other form. My point is, is that these men, and Jesus for that matter, had every right to put that woman to death. She's guilty. She's sinned. But the Pharisees, though, to be Pharisaical, you see their heart. They weaponize Scripture, not only to trip Jesus up, but to condemn the women. The woman, Jesus chose differently. The one person that truly had the right to condemn her chose to do something differently. He chose not to condemn. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I believe as she was embracing for that first stone to be hurled at her, 
she relaxed and began to look around only to see that it was her and Jesus standing there face to face. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now, you know why Jesus could make that statement? Because he knew he was going to the cross for that lady's sin. He knew what he was going to endure on the cross was to rescue, was to take the penalty of that woman. But isn't that the approach that Jesus takes with us all? John chapter 3, verse 17. We all know John 3, 16. But let's keep reading. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do you know what condemning someone is, regardless of their sin? It's hypocritical because you and I deserve to be condemned. Scripture says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Oh, but thanks be to God who made us alive through Christ Jesus our Lord. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now I know that this verse is often a misinterpreted verse. You know how many in our culture have taken this verse? They've taken it to mean that, that this verse says that we have no right to tell someone that what they are doing is wrong. But that can't be what this verse means. Why do you say that that can't be what this verse means, Chris? Well, because Jesus couldn't have meant that because he spent his entire ministry telling people that they're sinners, pointing out their sin. In fact, he summed up his ministry in John chapter 7, verse 7, he says, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So judging not does not mean that we don't call sin, sin. Beloved, Jesus has, has shown us the ways that we need to call sin, sin. And so long as I am pastor and so long as this church is founded upon the word of God, we will call sin, sin, regardless of the sin. So then what does judge not mean? I believe judge not means to condemn someone. Don't condemn someone. No one wants to be condemned. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says about, his, about condemnation. He says, it's what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you are judging them. I like that. We are to speak the truth but to do so in love. Beloved, if we are looking to the Bible to give us a drop-the-mic moment towards those that are struggling in sexual sin just so we can win an argument on Facebook and put them in their place, that action is condemning people, and that is not what Jesus would do. Instead, He would love them, stand them up, and say, I don't condemn you. Go. Go and sin no more. Let's not weaponize Scripture like the Pharisees. Which brings me to the third thing that we learn in John 8. Lovingly point in a godly direction. Instead of condemning people, let's lovingly point them in a godly direction. Isn't that what Jesus did? He identified her action as sinful. He called her on it. The woman at the well, he called her on it. But then he says, from now on, sin no more. If God does indeed love us, 
And if God stands ready to forgive us, to redeem us, and to save us, then can't he work in someone's heart to lead them in the right direction? I think so often we get off track because we want to be somebody else's Holy Spirit. Can I tell you something? You and I make terrible Holy Spirits. The Holy Spirit is good at what He does. Allow the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do. So what would Jesus do in our day and time? Oh, He would love everyone. He would not condemn them. And He would lovingly point them in the right direction. Beloved, let's be Jesus to our culture. So we've talked about what the Bible says and and about what Jesus would do. And in the third section of my sermon, some of you are counting minutes going, oh no, we're in trouble today. But in the time we have remaining, I want to talk about number three, how to navigate relationships. This is really where the questions came in, by the way, multiple questions. How do I navigate a friend of mine or a family member that's living in sin? This is the hard part. Because this is what seems to be so divisive in our culture today. The world would like to back us into a corner. The world would like for Christians to believe that there is only two responses. That we either condone sexual sin or we condemn the person living in sexual sin. See, not to, to not condone then is to condemn me. This is what the world says. But there is another option. Jesus didn't condone the woman's sin, and we know clearly from Scripture that he didn't condemn the woman. Instead, he had compassion on her. That's the middle ground. That's the third option. And to have compassion towards someone is to say, I see you. It's not okay, but I see you, and I'm going to walk with you through it. Listen, it is not loving to see someone caught in sin and to leave them there, headed for destruction. That is the most unloving thing anyone could ever do. The Bible says what it says about sexual sin, but we are to come alongside them and help them in their struggle. The advice that I would give for those of you trying to navigate your way around a friend, a child, a coworker, or even a family member that is in sexual sin is to let compassion be your guide. Let me give you a couple of examples here. When I was in college, I became really good friends with a guy, for the sake of this illustration, I'll call him Ted. But Ted and I became really good friends, and Ted was one of those guys that everybody loved. He was a true friend in all uh, definitions of the word. He supported you. He encouraged you. He, he prayed for me. I know specifically he prayed for me. He was a year ahead of me in, in studies, and so he graduated, and, and I still had a year left in college. And it wasn't too many months after he graduated that he called several of us, and he said he had something that he needed to share with us. And so he called each one of us individually, and Ted said that he was gay, that he was involved in another relationship. And as you can imagine, it was shocking to us all to hear those words. 
And several of my friends each had different reactions. It was unique to see those reactions. One friend of mine said, well, Ted, this changes everything. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. That friend chose condemnation. Another friend of mine said, well, Ted, whatever makes you happy, dude. That's condoning. When it came time for me to interact with Ted, I had to have been prompted by the Holy Spirit because I'm not a smart man. I only have two brain cells. But when he told me what he had to say, I just was silent for a moment, not knowing what to say. And I said, well, Ted, do you know what I think about that? He says, yeah, you think it's wrong. I said, I do. Do you know why I think it's wrong? He said, well, Chris, you believe the Bible teaches against it. I said, that's exactly right. And then I chose the middle ground. I said, but do you know that I love you, Ted? And he said, I hope that's true. I said, well, let me put all uh, other thoughts aside and tell you it is for real true. Can we keep this conversation going? And he said, I'd like that. And so over the course of the next two years, we would meet up and visit, but nothing real weighty with regards to the subject matter. Fast forward two years, I'm in seminary, and my phone rings. It's my friend Ted. And I pick up the phone and I say, what's up, bro? Only to hear sobbing on the other end of the line. And I said, oh no, what's the matter? And he asked if we could meet up. And so we met up at a restaurant and he told me that he had been convicted of his sinful lifestyle. He didn't know where to turn to, but he felt like I would tell him the truth, but I would do so in love. And so I did just that. And Ted struggled for the next several years through this sexual sin. Really struggled. But here's the truth. If you have a friend that is walking in that way, don't condone it. Stand on God's word and your biblical convictions, but don't condemn them either. Instead, show passion, compassion on them. And you know what's going to happen when you do that? You're going to leave the door wide open for conversations like I had with Ted. That's what our world needs more than anything. Am I right? Let me give you a couple of other practical applications for our discussion today. If you have a family member that is living a lifestyle that is opposed to your biblical convictions, trust the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Don't lean on your flesh. The flesh wants to correct. The flesh wants to be right. The flesh wants to win an argument. But listen, we're not here to win an argument. We're here to win a soul. And we've got to stay focused upon that. Hold to your conviction. But here's my advice. Hold to your conviction, but find common ground. And the way you do this is for every no you have, find a way to say yes. Two hypothetical situations. Number one, if I'm ever invited to a same-gender wedding, I'm not going to go. You know why? Because to attend that wedding is to approve of that union. 
You say, well, how does, how does attending approve? You remember back in the day when the pastor would stand up there and then he would say this, he would say, if there's anyone here that would give any reason as to why this couple should not be married together in this union, speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, if I'm in a wedding like that and that's said, I have to speak, right? So I don't want to be in that position. But if I'm not going to go to their wedding, you know what I need to be able to do? Say, but I will meet you for dinner. Another situation, let's say a family member has come out of the closet. You have young children. What do I do? What do I do? I I don't necessarily want to expose my kids to this. There's probably wisdom there. Okay? So what do I do? If it's me, this is just my advice, and you may have a different conclusion, and you may do something differently, those of you that find yourself in this situation. I'm probably not going to Thanksgiving. But I am saying, hey, can we catch up over coffee? For every no, find a way to say yes. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.